Good morning. Love having Marv back. My name is David Kakish. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone Church. And I want to begin this morning with a quick story from church history, if y'all are ready for it. You know the saying, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. There it is. So here's the story. Throughout the medieval times, the Roman Catholic Church conducted their worship services, their mass, exclusively in Latin. So the Bible, Latin. The singing was in Latin. Uh, the sermon was in Latin. All of it was in Latin. Big deal. So what? But the problem was the people and even most of the priests, uh, they didn't speak or understand Latin, even though the mass was in Latin. Can you see how that might present a problem? Yeah. So even though the people couldn't understand one word of the service, uh, they attended weekly mass anyways. They attended because the priest said, that's where you receive the grace of God. And without the grace of God, you'd be damned to hell. So attendance was usually pretty consistent, as you can imagine. Okay, so during the celebration of the Lord's Supper, when the priest would invoke the words of institution over the bread, he would say this, hoc es enum corpus meum. Anyone know what that means? Yeah, neither did the people, right? <laughs> That's kind of how it works. Hoc es enum corpus meum means this is my body in Latin. The very words that Jesus spoke as he broke the bread and gave it to those uh, whom he would forgive, who he calls his own. And the people heard the words, but they obviously didn't understand them. And like I told you last week, oftentimes when we don't understand things, we kind of fill in the gaps of understanding for ourselves. That's how we make sense of the world. And that's exactly what happened in this instance. Now, the people understood the concept of the Lord's Supper, what it was. But they assumed that the phrase that the priest was saying, that he was uttering some sort of incantation, some sort of magical phrase that would transform one element, the bread, into something else, the very body of Christ. It was just bread. He says this magical incantation, and it transformed into something else entirely. With this phrase, it became the body of Christ. And because they didn't know a lick of Latin, when the priest said, hoc es corpus, do you know what the people heard? Hocus pocus. Hocus pocus. Like abracadabra, pull a rabbit from a hat. That's where that phrase comes from. But wait, there's more. <sighs> the people heard the words, but they didn't understand. And because they didn't understand, their response to that was amiss. People would come in line. They would take the bread from the priest. He'd put it in their mouth. They'd chew it in front of him. But most of the time, they didn't swallow as they walked back to their seats. Do you know why? Because they thought that this once normal bread was now somehow imbued with magical properties. Something about it was different. It was magical now, and so they'd save it for later and take it home. Maybe they had a sick animal that they needed to keep their farm alive and they'd feed it to the animal thinking it might heal them. Sometimes they would bury it in their fields hoping that that would ensure a better harvest the next year. Now, for the last two weeks we've been looking at Nehemiah chapter 8 and our outline has been this. Uh, if I can get this to work. It's not wanting to. There it is. Hearing the word understanding the word and responding to the word. And with this lesson from church history, I hope you can see why there are three legs to this stool and why all three legs are essential. We need to hear the word rightly. We need to understand the word rightly. And only then can we respond to the word rightly. 
we've already spent time on hearing and understanding. So this morning we'll begin looking at the third uh, leg of this biblical stool, responding to the word. But first, I have to confess something to you all. Um, I lied to you. And uh, if you know me well, I have a feeling you might know what my lie was. Any guesses? Um, the line was, this was originally a one-part sermon, then a two-part sermon, and last week I told you it was a three-part sermon, but it's now a four-part sermon. And last week I told you I wasn't sorry, but this week I'm a little sorry. I am. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, open up with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Uh, and then we're going to camp out this week in verse 9, and we're really only going to look at one aspect of verse 9 this whole time, if you can believe me. But I, I think God has something for us there today. We'll see. Uh, so, if you have your Bible, open up Nehemiah chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. You guys are going to have this memorized by the time I'm done with this 30-part sermon series. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Uh, I'm having trouble with this slide thing today. Uh, I don't know. I mean, my batteries are dead. I'm sorry about that. There's, uh, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padeah, Mishal, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And as Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Yaqub, Shabbethai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kaleida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Help me out, Makai. There it is. And Nehemiah who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. This is point three, uh, responding to the word. And we're going to look at verse nine again. I'll read it again. I know you just heard it, but let's keep it fresh in front of us. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. What is happening here? That's really easy to explain. As the people heard and understood the word of God, verse 9 tells us that they started weeping and mourning. That's what's happening. But why are the people weeping and mourning? That's a little harder to explain and to understand that we'll need to understand the context so I want to maybe paint the scene a little bit <clears throat> I told you before that the nation of Israel at this moment was suffering from what I called uh, what did I call it uh, spiritual rabbit poisoning where they ate and felt full but were actually starving to death because there wasn't enough of God's truth in their regular diet 
They came to that realization, and when they realized it, the leaders rightly called for this nationwide Bible conference to remedy the issue. Thank God. Now, I can't tell you with any sort of certainty exactly what these people were thinking right here. But if they're anything like me, and chances are they are, because human nature is kind of predictable, I would guess they probably walked into this Bible conference the same way that I would. Ill-informed, feeling pretty comfortable, feeling pretty confident with just a hint of self-righteousness. You know, I hope Bob's listening today. That dude's life is a mess. He really needs to hear what we're about to hear. <clears throat> but if you ask them about their own spiritual state, I imagine they'd probably say something like this. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm spiritually thriving, but all things considered, I think I'm doing all right. I mean, of course I could be doing better. I mean, who couldn't? That's why I'm here today, you know? It can't hurt to have a little tune-up, an adjustment from God's truth in my life, right? That's probably how they felt, but then the people heard God's word, all of it. Uh, they heard it all, and as they heard God's word, they heard the central message of the scriptures. The story of the whole Bible is in many ways the story of a people who always forget their God and a God who always remembers his people. Let me read that one more time. The story of the whole Bible is in many ways the story of a people who always forget their God and a God who always remembers his people. And as the people listened to the word of God that day, they heard story after story after story about God's compassion, his grace, his holiness, his justice, his patience, his slow anger, his abounding steadfast love. And they heard all of God's commandments. At the same time, they also heard story after story after story about their unfaithfulness in the face of it. And then they understood the truth. Uh, and the truth moved them. Let's get verse 9 again. <clears throat> when we remember the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, well, remember that this scene takes place shortly after Israel returns from 70 years in captivity. 70 years. Who hears 70? Raise your hand. 70 and above. You seen a couple things in your day? They just returned from 70 years in captivity. The majority of the people there, as Ezra's reading this book, spent their entire lives in Babylon. That's all they know. So from their vantage point, God had exiled them away from their homeland. That's how they got there in the first place. And as a result, they were resigned to live in poverty and marginalization in this foreign land, apart from the land that God promised to give them. And once upon a time, when they first got there, God's so-called prophets told them in seven years, we'll be back home. And they believed it. <clears throat> but that was a lie. And the years kept on rolling. Seven, eight, nine, 28, 29, 36, 37, 61, 62, 63 years. How many people died in the waiting? And all the while, the people had to be thinking, where is the God of Israel? Where is he? Where is the God who delivered us with a mighty arm from Egypt? Where's the God who opened up the Red Sea to save us? Where's the God who led us with clouds and fire? Where's the God who fed us in the wilderness, who brought down the walls of Jericho, who gave David victory and Solomon wisdom? Where is the God who supposedly loves us? Where is he? With every year in Babylon, their trust in God probably waned and their resentment for God probably grew. And in a way, you, you get it, right? 
I mean, from their vantage point, every year in Babylon was just another year that God was unkind and unfair to them. Every year in Babylon was another year that God failed to come through. He was absent. Every year in Babylon was another year of trying to believe that God was good, worthy of all glory and honor and praise and all the rest of that. And yet their circumstances kind of said otherwise, yeah? And to be fair to God, sure, you know, he brought them back home. But it kind of feels like too little too late. I mean, look at the state of Israel at this point. The temple, the heart of the nation, their White House and Sistine Chapel rolled into one. It looks like a dump compared to what it used to be. Their economy is in shambles. The people are divided by tribes and ethnicity and wealth and class and all the rest. And the nation is weak. Like they're primed. They're ripe for another round of captivity from a foreign power. Thanks, God. You really delivered us. That's how they likely saw it, at least. And in a way, like I said, I get it. As I listen to their side of it, I can understand why they would feel that way. And I can sympathize with their trauma. I can. But, like Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines him. Y'all know that proverb? The one who states their case first seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines him. And now, I think we're on. Uh, I'm, I'm a little lost. No, maybe I did put that one. And now, as the people heard the word of God being read, their story was no longer being told from their vantage point. They were cross-examined by God's law. And when they heard the real story, when they heard the story as it really was, it counteracted and destroyed their narrative made us strong. And it was only then that they understood, really. They understood that their captivity in Babylon wasn't a failure on God's part in keeping his promises. It was the result of their disobedience. God kept his word. He did exactly what he told them he would do. He warned them. He did. It's just that his patient waiting for their repentance, which was a mercy, his years of warning and waiting, convinced them that he never would. He never could. I mean, they're not that bad. And look, nothing happened. So they pressed on. For years and years, God had warned his people about the consequences of their actions. He sent prophets to call them out. And the prophets tell the people exactly what would happen to them if they didn't repent. I'm telling you, these prophecies were so precise that progressive liberal scholars to this day write encyclopedia-sized books on these prophecies that they had to have been written after the fact because there's just no way that they could have known. I mean, they're mentioning kings and nations that don't even exist yet. It had to be made up after the fact. You know, this all happened and then they wrote about like, oh, and the prophets said this. That's how precise God's warnings were to his people and what would happen if they didn't repent. He warned them through his prophets and instead of hearing them and understanding them and responding in repentance, they ignored God's messengers. They tortured those prophets and even killed some, all the while they're patting themselves on the back for how good and godly and righteous they are. And after patiently enduring their disobedience for years and then for decades and for centuries, God finally let his people reap what they had sown. That's why they were in Babylon. But 
even in God's judgment, there was mercy. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. The exile to Babylon was a kindness to them, meant to lead them in repentance. God's intent was for their good. He wanted to bring his people's heart back to him. And even in Babylon, he never abandoned them. He never stopped loving them. And he never wavered, not once, not an inch from his promises to bless his people. Point being this, humanity's view of things, our vantage point is always warped because our vision is always warped. Our vantage point, our view of things is always warped because our vision is always warped. We see things dimly because we're surrounded by sin and darkness, not just outside of us, but inside of us. And without the light of God's word, our eyes kind of get accustomed to the darkness, don't they? Like, truth is, we maybe even start to like the darkness. It starts to feel <sighs> comfortable and almost right. Our eyes kind of start to relax when the room gets dark. And even though it's pitch black, we start to convince ourselves that we can even kind of see in it, yeah? But then when we really hear and understand God's word, boom! It's like a 10,000-watt spotlight is shining in our face, and it is uncomfortable, and it's painful. In that moment, we have two options, really. I'm going to give them to you. We either close our eyes as tight as we can and cover our eyes with our arms, trying to block out the light. That's option one. Or we endure the momentary pain and let our sight adjust to this blinding light, and only then can we really see. Those are your two options. Close your eyes, block the light with your arm, or experience it right through it and allow God to adjust and fix your vision. And here in Nehemiah 8, the people did the latter. They writhed through the pain of the blinding light of God's truth, and as a result, they began to see things clearly. With eyes wide open, they looked into the mirror of God's word. And as they did, they saw that they weren't the victims in this story. They were the villains. So they mourned, and they wept. They're grieving, and they are lamenting all of their false hopes, all of their false righteousness, all of their false words, all of their false accusations against God. They see them now for what they were. They are regretting, and they are remorseful over all of their sins active sins and passive sins. They're regretting and remorseful over their sins of commission, the ways they actively acted against God's commands, and their sins of omission, the times that they just ignored and didn't do the things that God commanded them to do. What we're witnessing in verse 9 is true repentance. It is sincere and genuine conviction over their sin. It's a full knowledge and a full confession without excuses for how they broke God's law. And it's true remorse for how their response to God's kindness was to smack him in the face. Through the word, the people were confronted by God's white-hot holiness. And this is their Isaiah 6 moment. They're crying out like Isaiah did, Woe is me! I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I didn't know it, didn't realize it, but now I see it. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And y'all, if I could be honest with you for a second, I think the American church could use one of these moments too. I do. Um, in this day and age, it feels like Christians in our country are huddled up in these tribal groups 
not just on opposite sides of the aisle, but on like opposite sides of the octagon. There's so many divisions and factions and all these tribes are huddled around and I, I know I shouldn't be surprised by that, that God's people would gather in these tribes uh, because they've always done it. Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, right? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. They've always done that. We know that. We read the scriptures, we see that, but I wasn't there to experience it. So what's happening these days, it, this situation feels more severe. It feels deeper because it, it, it's in our time and day. And it's like Christians are huddled in these little tribes, these little echo chambers where everyone feels and thinks and speaks and votes the same. And every tribe is certain that they see things clearly, that they alone really get it whether it's politics or COVID or race or economy or social justice or the nature and purpose of the church, every tribe is so sure that they know exactly what faithfulness looks like today. If you would only listen to them, they'd be glad to teach you. Every tribe is unwaveringly convinced without a shadow of doubt that God approves of them and is extremely disappointed with the other tribes, those idiots. And it feels like every tribe is locked and loaded with all the stones that they can reach, and with the zeal of Saul at the day he saw Stephen murdered, you know, they're ready to launch this full-fledged air raid against anyone they deem unclean or unfaithful. And do you want to know what the worst part is? The worst part is, I'm sure we're one of those tribes. Our thinking that we're not, no, we're not. We're different from those other tribes. Uh, we're doing it right. We're doing it biblically. We've balanced grace and truth, living between God's world and this world. We've got it dialed in. God's disappointed with those idiots, uh, but he's pleased with us. Yeah, I tried that this week in my conversations with God. <laughs> Do you know what he showed me? Uh, that's exactly the thinking that puts us in the same company because that's exactly what they're saying and thinking too. And this word from Nehemiah 8 is a 10,000-watt spotlight in all of God's people's eyes, showing us that those who truly see, those who truly hear, those who truly understand his word, those people aren't punching right. They're not punching left. They're not punching up, and they're not punching down. Do you know why? Because they are far too busy punching deep within at all the sin they see in their own heart. They're too busy doing that. They hear they understand, and they are responding. And I came across three different quotes this week, and when they got combined in my head, cursed this memory, they knocked my prideful heart on its butt hard. <laughs> and I'm going to share them with you, and if what I'm saying is resonating with you, if it sounds familiar to the rhythms of your heart, then I say this in love. I hope you experience the same thing. <laughs> Here's the first one. Uh, help me out, Makai. There it is. There is no enemy in our life so sinister, so stubborn, or so strong as our pride. Therefore, whenever weakness can crush our pride, we ought to receive it gratefully as a gift from God. Like I've warned you throughout this mini-series, hearing and understanding the Word of God can be painful. It's dying to self. And that's why our flesh flails around and comes up with 10,000 reasons why today won't work to read the Scriptures and tomorrow will be different. But even when it's painful, getting gut-punched from our encounters with God is better than 10,000 kisses from this world. Can anyone say amen to that? 
Getting gut punched from our encounters with God is better than 10,000 kisses from the world. Getting crushed by God's truth is a gracious gift for our good that despite the way we would think, actually builds us up, not tears us down. Uh, and then it inevitably shapes our response to God's word, which is uh, quote two. How do we know if we've truly encountered God in our hearing and understanding? How do we know if we've truly heard and understood well? Well, no, by our response. Hit me with it, Makai. One sign that you've encountered God is that you walk with a limp on a strut. One sign that we have encountered God in our hearing and our understanding of his word is that we walk with a limp, not a strut. Can we just let that soak in for a second? As you do, ask the Holy Spirit, how am I walking these days? Am I limping or am I strutting? Ask the Holy Spirit, what is the tone of my heart these days? Do my thoughts and prayers sound more like the Pharisee? God, I thank you that I'm not like others. Or do I sound like the tax collector beating my chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? When a person sees themselves rightly in the mirror of God's word, you know what the biblical pattern is over and over and over again? They fall on the floor in despair. They never, well, I'm killing it. It never happens. Only when we're knocked down by the holiness of God does the Holy Spirit lift us up in grace and put us back on our feet to walk in hope and in faith, knowing that I'm not saved by anything in me. I'm never anything than a poor sinner saved by your grace. And all that I am that is good is because you tell me I am. You call me that. And like that quote is saying, our encounters with God's word, it should be obvious to us and others because we can truly hear and understand word when we do. We're marked by it. We're changed by it. And our response to God's word is beautiful in his sight, not a false aroma in his nostrils. And finally, quote three is a request. It really shouldn't have to be said. It feels like it does. Hit me with it. Please don't be one of those Christians who seems to hate Christians. I'm just going to let that speak for itself. Let's go back to verse nine. In Nehemiah chapter eight, verse nine, the people heard and understood the word rightly. And then they responded to the word with mourning and weeping and repentance. And uh, like we've already discussed, that's actually a, a positive response. I mean, it seemed like it, but it is. Uh, read a line this week. Sometimes you've got to wrestle with God before you can rest in God. It's a positive response. Praise God for it. And yet, while it is a right response to the word, and y'all, I have a very legalistic heart that likes rules and punishment, even when it happens to me. And, and while I might be satisfied with the scene to end there, it doesn't. The text tells us uh, that even though they heard and understood rightly, their response was a little off, but not in the way that you would think. And that's what I want to talk about next week. Uh, for now, I just want us to pray and thank God for uh, his breathed out scriptures. And then I want us to respond to God's kindness in, in praise through song. And then as we exit this building, may we respond to the word. Uh, as we exit this building and, and, and enter into our mission field out there, may we respond to the word with 
love and a limp. That's what I'm praying for this week for myself. Let me respond to the word with love and a limp. So let's pray. Gracious God, giver of every good gift, we thank you for your word. We don't worship your word. We worship you. It's just through your word. uh, We know you. We hear you. We see your heart, your character, and our heart, and our character, and how the two interact. And God, may we be acquainted uh, with the sacred writings, with your scriptures, knowing that they are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus alone. God, may we acknowledge that your scripture is breathed out. It's not made up fanciful stories for a desperate people looking for a heavenly father figure. Your scriptures are breathed out there, hot off your breath. May we feel its heat, smell its sweetness, and hear the words in our soul. And we thank you for your word that is profitable for teaching, for showing us the truth, profitable for reproof, for exposing our rebellion. It's profitable for correction, showing us how to move forward in light of our mistakes. It's profitable for training in righteousness. Your word is a crash course for living into your way, which is life. God, through your word, I ask, at least for myself, I as that you would crush and destroy my self-made towers of Babel. You would build us back up as a people on a firm foundation. We trust that through your word you are shaping and molding us into what we should be, a picture of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. And that through your word you are training and equipping us to respond to your truth rightly so that we can do all that you ask us to do today, tomorrow, and the next day. God, we repent of filling our souls with things that could never satisfy us, spending our toil and money and life on things that will only leave us lacking. May we eat your word, we taste its sweetness, may we delight in it and truly be satisfied. Amen.